Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Hello, everyone. I apologize for this. I had some technical issues with Blog Talk Radio. I tried to log in to the, to the uh, website, and I had issues. So, you know, that does happen from time to time, and do the best I can to, to be on time. But, hey, sometimes technology doesn't allow you to do that, so uh, I apologize on uh, Blog Talk Radio's behalf. Um, my name is uh, Kennard. Uh, if you are listening to me for the first time, I'm the host for the Merciful Servants of God a biblical instructional program. Uh, today is uh, November 12th, uh, 2011, and the title of this program is The Elijah Message, The Elijah Message. And this is a very important program, uh, so I hope you pay attention, and I hope uh, you come out uh, learning something today, because I certainly did doing this Bible study. Some things that I didn't realize uh I believe uh, Elohim or God helped me to understand better. Okay, before we get into the Elijah message, the subject of this uh, Bible study, I want to talk about some things that are significant. I do have at the bottom of each description of each program that I'm going to focus on certain uh, events that are occurring that uh, Jesus or Yeshua, his Hebrew name, stated would occur, and you can Google this article, uh, it's um, the economic collapse, extreme poverty is now at record levels, and 19 19 statistics about the poor that will absolutely astound you, I'm not going to read all 19 statistics, I'm just going to write, or actually uh, read a little bit what this article is talking about. This this was written Saturday, November 5th, 2011. You can Google extreme poverty is now at record levels. This is from a virtual magazine called The Economic or Economic Collapse. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, a higher percentage of Americans is living in extreme poverty than they have ever measured before. In 2010, we were told that the economy was recovering, which is a big, fat lie. But the truth is that the number of the very poor soared to heights never seen previously. Back in, and that's what I want you to, I'm going to underscore that or 
underscore means put great emphasis on, uh, it states that the number of the very poor soared to heights never seen previously. Back in 1993 and back in 2009, the rate of extreme poverty was just over 6%, and that represented the worst numbers on record. But in 2010, the rate of extreme poverty hit a whopping 6.7%. That means that one out of every 15 Americans is now considered to be very poor. For many people, this is all very confusing because their guts are telling them that things are getting worse, and yet the mainstream media and what it means by media, the television uh, reporters and all that, keeps telling them that everything in the newspaper publications and magazine publications and online publications, keeps telling them that everything is just fine. Hopefully this article will help people realize that the plight of the poorest of the poor continues to deteriorate all across the United States. And, of course, he says, in addition, hopefully this article will inspire many of you to lend a hand to those that are truly in need and going to understand today, hopefully, that the Elijah message is about that, is about reaching out and, and helping people and eliminating poverty and oppression and, and problems. And it says, tonight, there are more than 20 million Americans that are living in extreme poverty. This number increases a little bit more every single day. And the following statistics that were mentioned in an article in the Daily Mail should be very sobering for all of us, and it should be, but I know with quite a few Americans, particularly our leaders, they really don't care about this like they should. About 20.5 million Americans, or 6.7% of the U.S. population, make up the poorest poor, defined as those at 50% or less of the official poverty level. Those living in deep poverty represent nearly half of the 46.2 million people scrapping by below the poverty line. In 2010, the poorest poor meant an income of 5570 or less for an individual and 11157 for a family of four. Keep in mind the average household, I think, is around $130, $140 million. So that's, that's quite a bit of people that right now, currently, as I'm speaking, uh, is experiencing poverty, $46.2 million. The 6.7% share is the highest in 35 years that the Census Bureau has maintained such records, surpassing previous highs in 2009 and 1993 of just over 6%. Sadly, the wealthy and the poor are being increasingly segregated all over the nation. In some areas of the U.S., you would never even know that the economy was having trouble, and other areas resemble third-world hellholes. In most U.S. cities today, there are good neighborhoods and there are bad neighborhoods. According to a recent Bloomberg article, the very poor are increasingly being pushed into these bad neighborhoods. At least 2.2 million more Americans, a 33% jump since 2000, live in neighborhoods where the poverty rate is 40% or higher, according to a study released today by the Washington-based Brookings Institution. Of course, they don't have much of a choice. They can't afford to live where most of the rest of us do. Today, there are many Americans that openly look down on the poor, which is a great sin, by the way, because the Bible states in Proverbs 29. Actually, let's turn there. Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. Verse 7 it says the righteous, and now keep in mind, this is one of the definitions of being a righteous person. A righteous person is not a perfect person, but it's a person that strives to obey the teachings and the doctrines and the laws of God in the Bible. Proverbs 29, verse 7, the righteous considereth 
the cause of the poor. But the wicked regards not to know. So he's telling you this. If you don't give a crap, if you don't care about the poor, then you're not righteous to God. You're not righteous in God's sight. You don't care. And as you're going to see, Elijah, both of them, and the future one, are going to care about the poor. And you, if you're around ministries that don't care about the poor, don't take care of them, and are concerned about family uh, um, getting together, reconciliation, that's what I was trying to say, uh, then that's not a ministry you should, that you should be a part of. If they, if they are all about just making money, here, here's this great teacher, and buy my videos and the DVDs, I mean, what, what has that got to do with the God-inspired Elijah message that you're going to understand today? I hope you're going to understand today. Okay, again, let me read this in a clearer version, complete Jewish Bible version, which I highly recommend you get, the complete Jewish Bible version by David Stern. Just go ahead and Google on Amazon and purchase the book. Proverbs 29, verse 7, The righteous understands the cause of the poor, but the wicked is unconcerned. And unfortunately, the Bible reveals a lot of wicked folks out there that don't care about the poor. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have 46.2 million people in poverty when you have the richest billionaires in the world here residing in the United States. Now, Warren Buffett, he does what he can, and, and I, I think Bill Gates does, you know, but the other billionaires don't. And and, and uh, you can't, you can't uh, expect Bill Gates to solve all the world's problems, even with his $55 billion net worth. I don't think that's fair, but, you know, he's contributing. And Warren Buffett is contributing, maybe not as much as they should, but they are contributing something. Okay, and and uh, other rich people should contribute. Let me uh, turn to another scripture here, because this is important, folks. I mean, the, the bottom line about what the gospel is all about, is, as I try to explain to people and they don't want to hear it, uh, I support the prophet's message. Okay, and anyone that supports the prophet's message, are, as you're going to see today, are going to be persecuted and not very well liked, and they're not going to be popular among society. That's just the way it's going to be. Uh, even the first Elijah was called a troublemaker to Israel. All right, so that's part of the Elijah message. People are going to think you're a troublemaker if you're supporting uh, that message. So um, because people don't want to, they here, the problem just like uh, Jesus stated in John seven verse seven, people don't want to know what their sins are, and yet the the, the gospel is about repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, and people just don't want to be corrected. And the Elijah message, when you really understand it, the Elijah, he's the forerunner to the Messiah. All right, and when you understand it too, the Elijah message is about restoring all things, all the true teachings of God and everything, the temple and, and so forth. And when people don't understand that, they just don't understand the true message of the Bible. That's why it's very important in, in the context of these series of Bible studies that I'm doing on how to worship the, the, the true and, and most holy God, if you don't understand the message that inspires you to, to, to worship, how are you going to be able to worship the most holy God in the right way? Am I making sense? You know, so I'm sarcastic my wife. So, um, again, in Proverbs 29, verse 7, the righteous understands the cause of the poor, but the wicked is unconcerned. Now let's look at First Timothy, chapter 6. And 
I'm going to read this in complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. And this is a commandment to anybody who's rich. So if there's anybody that's rich listening to me, pay attention to this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for those who do have riches in this present world, it's not talking about spiritual riches, folks. It's, you look in the context, it's talking about money, lots of it, like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. Charge them not to be proud and not to to let their hopes rest on the uncertainties of riches, but to rest their hopes on God, who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. And verse 18, charge them, this is a commandment from the Holy Scriptures to all who are rich, charge them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready, not running away from it, but ready to share. In this way, they will treasure up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may lay hold of the real life. So that's the problem, folks. Uh, the opening the opener of, to, uh, of my program tells you what the problem of the world is. Let's turn there. Psalms. Somebody has to speak out, and it looks like I'm doing it. I don't know. I don't know of others, but I'm sure I couldn't be the only one out here supporting the Elijah message, the true Elijah message. You've got people preaching about Elijah and saying certain things about what is not. I'm going to re reveal to you the true message of, of the Elijah using the scriptures. Uh, Psalm chapter 82, verse 1 in the complete Jewish Bible version. Elohim stands in the divine assembly there with the Elohim or the judges or the gods. And verse 2. How long will you go on judging unfairly, favoring the wicked? That's a prophecy, folks. That's what's going on today. There's a lot of favoritism going around. The wicked, in a lot of cases, are linked with the rich. How do I know that? In Matthew chapter 19, Christ said that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. In some Hebraic context, it's not talking about a camel. It's talking about something else. But still, that something else can't get through the eye of a needle. <laughs> okay, so I don't know other than a, um, a real small string and go get through an eye of a needle, but anything else can't. Okay, so so the point of the matter is, it's very. He was making a point that it's very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And if that's the case, there's a lot of rich people that are wicked. Okay, so let's let's use common sense here. All right, and Psalm eighty-two, verse three: Give justice to the weak and fatherless. And what you're going to understand about the Elijah mess is all about the fatherless. It's all about helping the fatherless and the weak. Uphold the rights of the wretched and the poor is about that too. Verse 4, rescue the destitute and needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. I just read to you what's going on in the richest country in the world. We got 40, we we're the, have the most inequality of all nations in the world. In the richest nation in the world. We don't have any excuse, especially the fact we, we we state the fact we're such a righteous nation. We're such a righteous nation. We're so holy and, and righteous and good, right? Well, if that's the case, then why do we have all this poverty and people blame on the poor? It's not the poor, folks. Most poor people want to do something. The problem is oppression, as the Bible predicts. And then 
because of this attitude problem and uh, Psalm 82 that most people in the world have, verse 5, they don't know, especially the powerful and the rich, uh, they don't know, they don't understand, they wander about in darkness. In other words, they, they don't understand things. They don't have a, a, a common sense. Meanwhile, all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. That's the problem, folks. Do you understand that? I mean, that because of poverty and oppression that's causing the destruction of the earth, it says all the foundations of the earth are being undermined. That is the problem, folks. And the good news is that he states in Psalm chapter 10, let's go there, Psalm chapter 10. That's why I know that we're at the end of our rope. And that's the good news. The bad news is we're going to go through hell to get uh, to the end of that rope, uh, concluding with uh, the Messiah landing on the Mount of Olives. Psalm chapter 10, verse 9. Lurking unseen like a lion in his lair, he lies in wait to pounce on the poor. This is talking about the wicked rich. Then seizes the poor and drags him off in his net. I, I was reading on CNN. One of the things that CNN is really good about is these documentaries about what's going on in the world and, and, and then also about the slavery. There's a lot of slavery around the world. And slaves are poor. You know, and this is what happens to them. That he sees the poor and drags him off in his net. Verse 10, yes, he stoops, crouches down low, and the helpless wretch falls into his clutches. Similar to black African slavery. We were taken uh, from Africa and forced to, to be slaves here in the United States. That's, that's oppression. That's poverty. And by the way, that sin is punishable by death, by the way, according to the Torah. So for those who have done that in the past, they're fortunate that they weren't killed right on the spot based on the Torah. And, of course, that wasn't implemented because uh, Israel was scattered, so those certain laws aren't implemented today, even though we have capital punishment, but it's done uh, according to um, the laws of the land, as uh, Romans, I think, chapter 13 tells us. So anyway, uh, in verse 11, he says in his heart, God forgets, he hides his face, he will never see. And this is what the wicked rich think, that God is not going to see these things. And in verse 12, it says, Arise, Adonai, raise your hand, don't forget the humble. Why does the wicked despise God and say in his heart it won't be held against me? So it's, it, this is, um, he's definitely going to rise, folks. And let me read this in a different version here. And in verse 16, or verse 15, it states this, Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The, bre the brethren or heathen are perished out of his hand. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thy ear to hear, to judge the fatherless. Here we go again. The fatherless and the oppressed. That the man of the earth may no more oppress. And that's the problem with the world right now. The men says the man of the earth may no more oppress. It must be such a problem for him to talk about it in that context. Oppression is the problem, folks. What is oppression? Not allowing somebody to better themselves. Uh, you're preventing them from having certain resources, necessary resources to better themselves so they can make a living. And that is the problem. That's what not obeying God and, and staying away from God does ultimately to 
the family structure and everything, as hopefully you're going to see uh, today. So, you know, this is very important to understand here. And and then Psalm 12, verse 5 is one of my most favorite scriptures here in terms of this poverty problem that we have, not only in the United States, but worldwide. And it's getting worse. Uh, Psalm 12, verse 5. Because the poor are oppressed, because the needy are groaning, I will now rise up, says Adonai, and grant security to those whom they scorn. The words of Adonai are pure words, silver in a melting pot set in the earth, refined and purified seven times over. You, Adonai, protect us, God is forever from this generation. This generation we're living in today. The wicked strut about everywhere when vileness is held in general esteem. Okay, so let's get a better definition of that. And this is in the complete or the contemporary English version of the Bible. In Psalm 12, verse 8. But all who are wicked will keep on strutting while everyone praises their shameless deeds. Okay, um, things are really bad, folks. If you want to read all these uh, <laughs> sad 19 statistics, you go ahead. But uh, well, actually, one of the ones that stands out here today: there are over 45 million Americans on food stamps. 45 million Americans. One out of every six elderly Americans now lives before the, below the federal poverty line. More than 20 million U.S. children rely on school meal programs to keep them from going hungry. 20 million kids rely on school meal programs to, to, to keep them alive, basically. That's sad, folks, in the richest country in the world. And then people persecute me. Some people persecute me and the reason why I don't vote. I don't vote because there's no one that I know of that would lead properly. Why should I vote for... Uh, phonies and liars and, and people that say they're going to do something and they get in their office, they don't do it. You know, or uh, they say they're going to do something. That's why you got to watch your tongue, you know. <laughs> James chapter 3 says that if you say you're going to do something, you better do it. If you don't do it, you're lying. And I'm, I try to be as careful as I can not to be lying about anything. And, and anyone should. But these politicians, that's what they say what you want to hear to get them elected. And then once they're elected, okay, well, it's no big deal to us. And it says the poverty rate for children living in the United States increased to 22% in 2010. And it says um, it isn't just the ranks of the very poor that are rising. The number of those just considered to be poor is rapidly increasing as well. Back in the year 2000, 11.3% of all Americans were living in poverty. Today, 15.1% of all Americans are living in poverty. Since last year, 2.6 million more Americans descended into poverty. That was the largest increase that we have seen since the U.S. government began keeping statistics on this back in 1959. So, you know, I hope you guys are aware that we're, we're living in biblical prophetic times right now. You may have heard this before, but it's dead on now, folks. There's no turning back. We are too much in debt right now. We're like $200 trillion in debt. And if you don't believe me, just type in... Does Google Google the phrase $200 trillion in debt in the United States? And you'll see there's an article that comes up, or should come up unless they took it down, uh, that reveals to you that we're, true, we're $200 trillion in debt. 
We're not going to be able to get out of that debt not obeying the laws of God, folks. There's no way on earth we're going to do that. So we've got to understand that and be realistic about what's really going on. Okay, so let me uh, read the Torah readings here. I'm going to quickly do that. Uh, Genesis 18, starting in verse 1 of Genesis 22, verse 24. I'm just going to use the summaries again from uh, Habat because I want to get into the message, the very important message of uh, the Elijah today, the Elijah message. And I'm um, getting this information, and this is a very good website, by the way, uh, to, to really understand Tanakh, the Old Testament, um, Habat, C, as in cat, H-A-B, as in boy, A-D, dot org. Okay, so courtesy of Habad here, we're going to uh, summarize uh, Genesis chapter 18 and up to 21, 22 verse 24. It has the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in there, which is interesting. It says, God reveals himself to Abraham three days after the first Jews. Now, he wasn't the first Jew. Uh, that's incorrect, but uh, he is, because of Abraham, Jews came through him. Uh, remember, he... Uh, Jacob came from Abraham's line, and Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was uh, Judah. That's where the Jews came from. <laughs> so let's let's get that straight. Anyway, uh, God reveals himself to Abraham three days Okay, um, after his circumcision at age 99. Now he got... <laughs> He got circumcised at 99 years old. I mean, that that had to be painful. But anyway, <laughs> 99 years old. Woo! Anyway. But Abraham rushes off to prepare a meal for three guests who appear in the desert heat. And, you know, Abraham, That's one of that was one of his great characteristics, that he was very hospitable. You know, he, he, he loved hospitality, and he loved to, to greet strangers and, and uh, entertain them. And that's what entertainment really means. It's supposed to mean being hospitable having great hospitality, serving. We've turned that word into uh, having a good time, you know. But that's what, if you look up the original the word in the dictionary, that's what it really means. So anyway, one of the three who are angels disguised, disguised as men, well, one of them was, you're sure, I have to make a couple of corrections here, okay, in this uh, pre-existing form, because it did state that he was the Lord in there. So you have to believe what the text says. Anyway, announced that, in exactly one year, the barren Sarah will give birth to a son. Sarah laughs. So in other words, Sarah doubts. And we have that habit sometimes. We, we just don't think that God is going to do what he says in his word. And matter of fact, that got Gabriel so angry that God allowed him to cause um, uh, Zechariah, who was uh, John the Baptist's father, to not be able to speak. And he said that nothing's impossible for God. And we got to believe that. Anyway, Abraham pleads with God to spare the wicked city of Sodom. Two of the three disguised um, beings arrive in the doomed city where Abraham's uh, nephew Lot extends his hospitality to them and protects them from... Now, Lot did the same thing that uh, Abraham did. So he just followed his example, his, uh, his uncle's example. Uh, and protects them from the, the evil intentions of a sodomite mob. The two guests reveal that they have come to overturn the place and to save Lot and his family. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt, uh, 
when she disobeys the command not to look back at the burning city as they flee. While taking shelter in a cave, Lot's two daughters, believing that they and their father are the only ones left alive in the world, and they actually believe that, <laughs> got their father drunk, lied with him, and became pregnant. Now, I guess, well, it would be, based on the example of Adam and Eve, that would have been justifiable if they were the only human beings left on the earth. So that's why they did it. So I'm sure that God forgave them because they really thought that they were the only, that devastation was so bad that they thought they were the only people left on the earth, you know. So Now, the frightening thing about this is that Yeshua compares the days of Lot to the time of his second coming, folks. So, you know, we, we've got to, and that's that, that time is approaching here. But anyway, they get their father drunk, lie with him, and become pregnant. The two sons born from this uh, incident followed the nations of Moab and Ammon, which is uh, in the, the region of Jordan today. Abraham moves to Gerar, where the Philistine king Amalek takes Sarah, who is presented as Abraham's sister, to his palace. In a dream, God warns Amalek that he will die unless he returns the woman to her husband. Abraham explains that he feared he would be killed over the beautiful Sarah. God remembers his promise to Sarah and gives her and Abraham a son who is named Isaac, which means, you know, his name means Yitzhak in Hebrew, and it means laugh, will laugh. <laughs> so he kind of got back, Sarah back there, you know, for her laughing. He named her son, laughs her. That helped her understand what she did. And I'm sure that every time she looked at Isaac or Yitzhak, she remembered her doubt and, and said, hey, I shouldn't doubt Elohim anymore. But anyway, Isaac is circumcised at the age of eight days, uh, and then Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah 90 at their child's birth. You talk about there's a God, yes. I mean, for some, he was 100. And someone who's 90 can have a child. That's definitely God doing that, folks. <laughs> anyway, Hagar and Ishmael are banished from Abraham's home. And remember, Ishmael, I read last week, the uh, Israeli problem, not the Israeli, yeah, the Israeli problem, the Arab problem, that, that was the origin of it, Ishmael. So whenever you sin like that, that's, it causes uh, chaos and destruction, you know. And unfortunately, that, that's what happened. But Abraham sinned like everyone else. But, see, the difference between Abraham and most people is that he repented, and he didn't do it again, see. Uh, banished from Abraham's home and wandering in the desert, God hears the cry of the dying lad and saves his life by showing his mother a well. Abimelech takes a treaty with Abraham at Bathsheba, where Abraham gives him seven sheep as a sign of their truth. Now, he gave him, that's a very valuable gift, <laughs> to give him seven sheep, folks which is symbolic, I guess, of something, you know. God tests Abraham's devotion by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that's that's interesting because that's where uh, he was sacrificed, and there's a number of people, including myself, that believe that's the area where the crucifixion took place, near that area. Isaac is bound and placed on the altar, and Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son. A voice from heaven calls to stop him. A ram caught in the undergrowth by his horns is offered in Isaac's place. And this is symbolic of what the father did. He sacrificed his own son, not on an altar, but on a cross. And, you know, many Jews don't see this, but it's a clear picture of atonement. They understand atonement 
uh, in reference to the Day of Atonement. As uh, in a matter of way, I, I've noticed that there's a lot of people listening to that Bible study. So <laughs> quite a few people have downloaded that. So um, please download that uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to understand what the, the message of the gospel is all about, in particular understand what the blood of Christ does for us. Not only does it save us from eternal death, but it also it is a catalyst to provoke us to do good works. And you probably never heard that before, but that's in the Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter uh, 9. But anyway, he died not for us to continue to sin. He died for us to stop sinning, folks. I know you probably never heard that message before, perhaps, but that's the truth. Let me uh, go to Hebrews chapter 9, by the way, because... Many of you may think I'm a crackpot saying this, so let me go to Hebrews chapter 9 and read this to you so you understand. Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version again. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. He entered the holiest place once and for all. The holiest place, and you understand the temple architecture and structure, is where the mercy seat is located. The mercy seat, uh, underneath that you have the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and you have actually the mercy is a part of the Ark of the Covenant, and then inside of it you have uh, the Ten Commandments, and by the side of it you have the first five books of, of the of the Bible, the Law of Moses, which is the Law of God, and this is in the holiest place. And, uh, and the high priest only once a year was allowed to go into the holiest place, and that's what it's talking about there. But there's a there's a holiest place on the earth, but there's a holiest place in heaven. There's a temple in heaven, there's a temple on the earth. The temple on the earth is a pattern or a symbolic of the temple in heaven. So anyway, to give you the context. So he entered the holiest place once and for all, and he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus setting people free forever. Free from what? Free from eternal death. Verse 13, for a sprinkling ceremony of unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer restores their outward purity. So that's all the sacrifices did, folks. It did not... Uh, do what is going to state here in verse 14. The, what those sacrifices did was cleanse us physically so we can approach God at that time. But it didn't do the following here in verse 14. Then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. Okay. So that's proof right there, and I know some people going around preaching a false doctrine that the book of Hebrews is not a part of the Bible. May God open their brains to realize that that's not true. That's not true at all. So, so, uh, and this person, uh, I'm, I'm sure that some people may know who I'm talking about. He needs to repent of that because that's ridiculous. That's a false teaching. And that can be easily proved out of the Bible that he's incorrect in his... Uh, Opinion, and that's all it is, is opinion about the book of Hebrews not being scripture. So, but anyway, um, 
Because that's one example of a very powerful scripture to help you to understand that the Messiah did not die just to wipe our sins away and we go on sinning. No, it, 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 he died also so that we can serve the living God and to cleanse our conscience from works that lead to death. So life is about doing something, folks. That's what the Elijah message is about, which is, came from God to Elijah. And that's the message that is prophesied to be preached in these end times. To repent from dead works. To serve the living God. Okay, so. Isaac is bound and placed on the altar, and Abraham raises his knife to slaughter his son. Now, keep in mind, again, this this involves, again, as I was trying to explain these people when I was doing this Bible study, true worship of God has something to do with serving him, obedience, and it also involves temple worship or sacrificing, which that's what the temple worship is about. And in this great event with Isaac, it involved, again, sacrifices. You know, you can't run away from sacrifices. Sacrifices is a very important teaching of the Bible, folks. It's all throughout the Bible, sacrifices. And the reason why is because God wants us to understand that's what our lives are about. It's about sacrifice and service and sharing and caring. That's what he wants us to understand. Just like in Genesis chapter 4, when um, Cain killed Abel, the first murder in the history of mankind, God asked him, where is your brother Abel? And then Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? The original Hebrew word for keeper means protector. And the entire, and the Jews correctly teach this, the entire Bible is the answer to that question. And he answers, yes, we are. We are all our brothers and sisters keepers, or should be. And we should care about everyone. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The problem is most people don't even know how to love themselves. So how can they love their neighbor? So a voice from heaven calls to stop him. A ram caught in the undergrowth by his horns is offered in Isaac's place. Abraham receives the news of the birth of his daughter Rebecca to his nephew Bethiel. Okay, so that's the Torah portion there. Uh, I'm going to cover hopefully today a little bit of Sodom and Gomorrah. If not, I'll do it in the future. I've done this many times about Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, um, well, let's go over that, the sins. At least we go over what the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are. Because many people think it's just homosexuality, and that's not what it is, only. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. And he calls that his, the time of his second coming will be full of that. It will be full of sodomy. And you'll understand here why, what he's talking about here when we turn to the Scripture, because God... We don't need Jewish tradition or we don't need anyone else to tell us the definition of sodomy. God gives us a definition if we just believe his words. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Okay. Ezekiel chapter 16. Remember this. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. Now, this, this I want you to understand this, because I don't think most people are preaching this. They're not preaching what the sins of Sodom is. 
And if you understand what the sins of Sodom is, and if you understand Isaiah chapter 3, where he links Israel, who, by the way, Israel is, is us, is a part of us. Uh, if you don't believe me, go to Yer Davidi's website, www.bsandboyritam.org. The ten tribes of Israel are today, geographically, uh, the United States, Canada, the countries in northwestern Europe, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, and, of course, anyone that believes in King Messiah, who is King Jesus, who is the King of Israel, also gets grafted into Israel. Most of the Bible's distributions is located in the United States and Canada and those other regions of the world. And, you know, God prophesied that these regions of the world would be the richest regions in the world, and they are. They have the most food, have the most Bibles, have the most blessings. And, of course, uh, the little nation of Israel is a part of the total 12 tribes of Israel. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. The crimes of your sister Sodom were pride and gluttony. She and her daughters were careless and complacent, so they did nothing to help the poor and the needy. They were arrogant and committed disgusting acts before me, so that when I saw it, I swept them away. All right, so that tells you what the sins of sodomy are is being prideful which we are in this country we're gluttons oh my goodness we are the fattest or one of the fattest people in the world okay uh we're careless and complacent you know we fema tells us over and over again to prepare for catastrophes and what we do we wait for catastrophes to occur and then we expect the government to help us i mean we're, we're, we're complacent uh, and of course this is a big boo-boo for us so that they did nothing to help the poor and the needy those are the sins of Sodom, uh, being arrogant and, of course, committing disgusting acts before him. We know what that was, right? Homosexuality and all the other sins, uh, sexual sins that are listed in Leviticus 18 are practiced in this country. Incest, uh, bestiality, homosexuality, uh, just like this uh, this coach, or whatever his name is, whatever, having sex with a 10-year-old child, I mean, and in and, and the, the shower. I mean, it, this is despicable. This describes us, our nation. And it describes the state of the world, but in particular those Israelitish nations that claim to be so righteous. We lead the world in pornography. Pornilia, fornication. That's where pornography came from. Pornilia, which means fornication. We're sad cases, folks. And it's time that somebody tells this nation, this world, how sick we really are. You know, I know I'm not going to be liked. This is not a popularity contest. This is a, this is a this is a life-saving mission to try to save people and wake people up. As you know, the Bible says that the assemblies of God, the foundation of God, is the apostles and the prophets. Elijah was a prophet, and Moses was a prophet. And if anybody's not preaching the prophet's message, they're not a true servant of God. They're not they're not really teaching you the truth. And the prophet's message, what what was the prophet's message all about, folks? Let's take a look at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter seven.
Here we go again with the prophet's message, and I'm going to read this in the English uh, Standard Version Bible. Zechariah 7, verse 7. Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited. Now, understand, in Ephesians 2, verse 20, it says that the assemblies of the churches, the assemblies, that's what church really means, assembling people assemble together to worship God. Uh, one of the foundations of the assembly is the prophets. Okay? So I want you to, to really pay attention to these words that I'm about to quote here. And the word came to Zechariah, saying, in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the soninger, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That was the message, the key central message of the prophets, folks. Not trying to figure out when the Messiah is going to come back. That's that's not the central message of any prophet. A true prophet, one of the identifications of a true prophet, is that they have a deep concern for the poor. They have a deep concern for people's problems, and they want to solve those problems. Job, he didn't look, for, he didn't wait for the poor to come to him. He went to the poor. That's why God considered him such a righteous man. Verse eleven. But they refused to pay attention and turn a stubborn shoulder and stop their ears that they might not hear. They literally took their hands and put them over their ear. They did not want to hear the prophet's message. Okay? That's sad. <laughs> and here, it goes further. Verse 12. They made their hearts diamond hard. <laughs> diamond hard. <laughs> Lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. That's how stubborn we are as a nation. We do not want to hear the words of the prophets. I don't think many people realize, but Yeshua was a prophet or is a prophet. Okay? <laughs> that is, so that includes him too. All the prophets, including him. Most people don't want to hear that message that talks about taking care of people and the poor. They don't want to hear that. That's not attractive to them. Anyway, in verse 12, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And this is what happened because of that. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. See, so, you know, you're going to play these games with God. He ain't going to listen to you. Okay? He, you know, he... I don't think people really realize that God is a living... What do you think we get our emotions from? Anger, hate, you know, happiness, joy, etc., right? We get that from Him. It all comes from Him. He's an emotional being, too. And when you don't obey Him, He doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like that. And He has a right not to like that. He created us. We didn't create Him. Verse 13, As I called and they would not hear... And here really means Hebraically understand. So they called and I would not hear or understand. You don't want to understand them, <laughs> says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, and I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, 
so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Okay, folks, so that that is the message of the prophets. You may have never heard that before. But I know that if I support the prophet's message, I'm going to be persecuted. Elijah was persecuted. Both of them were persecuted. And so will I be persecuted and anyone else that preaches the true message of the prophets. It's not a popularity contest. And many people think that, that ministry is a popularity contest. Okay, so we're talking about um, the importance of uh, the prophet's message here, and we're going to look at the uh, A prophet here, uh, the Heptor section of the uh, Torah readings, and then we're going to get into the Elijah message, which I probably won't have time to get into totally today. I'll probably uh, finish up on it next week. But I'm going to take my time with it because it's very important. Okay, uh, the Torah section, the prophet section is Second uh, Kings 4, verses 1 to 37. I'm just going to read the summary again. If I can find it here on the website. Oh, there we go. Here it is. Okay, in this week's Torah reading, God promises a child to Abraham and Sarah, despite child child Sarah's advanced age. The words, I mean, the weeks have Torah describes a similar incident that occurred many years. The prophet Elijah, who uh, was um, Elijah, taught him to be a prophet. All right, uh, the prophet Elijah assuring an elderly childless woman that she will bear a child. Here we go again with helping the poor and and having compassion and mercy. That's why I call my ministry the merciful servants of God. The Hattor discusses two miracles performed by the prophet Elijah. The first miracle involved a widow who was heavily in debt, and her creditors were threatening to take her two sons as slaves to satisfy the debt. What a cruel thing. When the prophet asked her what she had in her home, the widow responded that she had nothing but a vial of oil. Elijah told her to gather as many containers as possible, borrowing from neighbors and friends as well. She would then pour oil from her vial into the empty container. She did as commanded, and miraculously the oil continued to flow until the last empty jug was filled. The woman sold the oil for a handsome profit and had enough money to repay her debts and live comfortably. Now, see, that's that's an amazing story. The second miracle, Elijah would often pass by the city of Shunam, where he would dine and rest at the home of a certain hospitable couple. Now, remember, this couple was hospitable. They allowed people into their homes. This couple even made a special addition to their home, a guest room designated for Elijah's use. Very righteous people. When the prophet learned that the couple was childless, he blessed the woman that she should give birth to a child in exactly one year's time. And indeed, one year later, a son was born to the aged couple. See, when you do righteous works, God rewards you for that. He rewards you for that. A few years later, the son complained of a headache and died shortly thereafter. The Shunammite woman laid the lifeless body on the bed in Elijah's designated room and quickly summoned the prophet. Elijah hurried to the woman's home and miraculously brought the boy back to life. Actually, it wasn't Elijah. God did it through Elijah. Elijah was a very powerful prophet, but look at who he had to teach him. 
Elijah. So really, uh, he was a protege. So that that's that's important to understand about Elijah. And uh Elijah and Elijah, what a they were very very two very powerful prophets. And they did a lot of it. And part of their, their ministry was to help people, to help the poor. You know, and, and then the Bible talks about in these end times that there would be another Elijah coming that would preach that message. Um and we're gonna get into that here about what the first Elijah in particular, what his mission was all about, so that you can understand what the Elijah message is about today. And then we're going to talk about John the Baptist. And this is important, folks, because I find in ministries as as a whole, whether they're Messianic, Christian, whatever, they're, they're just not preaching the true message of God. They're, they're not. Uh, the, the doctrines of God, let's go over them here. In Hebrews chapter six, verse one, and you get this this uh, this uh, so-called Torah teachers going around telling people the book of Hebrews is not scripture, and yet the book of Hebrews tells you what the the, the main doctrines of God are. Doesn't make any sense. Hebrews chapter six, verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Doctrine of Christ is doctrine of God because He got everything. All His teachings come from God. And go on to maturity. Now, let me let me look at another verse here because, you know, I, I talk to people and it's not a, a good enough, folks, that you just listen to the words of God. You got to put them, apply them. That's what Israel did. They listened. They listened. They listened. Obviously, they didn't study because they sinned almost all the time. You have to to listen to the words of God and apply them in your life. If you don't do that, it's not going to do you any good to even listen. But anyway, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, this is, I, you know, I, I, I really, and Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay, Many people don't think he did and all that, but he did. Hebrews 5, verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So the, even back then, people were becoming dull of hearing. They didn't want to understand. They didn't want to listen. Verse 12. Now, this is a significant scripture. Please pay attention to this one, okay? Let me read verse 11 again. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Wait, actually, let me see. He's talking about the Messiah here, the context. In verse 8, although he was, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here we go again. <laughs> salvation, folks, is linked with obedience. You can't separate the two. And that's what a lot of these false ministers and false prophets are doing today. And f- false prophets, too. You have some women thinking that they all this and all that. You know, so, so uh, you know, the, the thing is, you can't separate salvation from obedience. And many ministers are saying that. We say, well, blood, the shed blood of Christ, uh, you don't have to do nothing. It's grace, grace, grace. But what does the scripture say here? Hebrews 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So if Christ learned obedience, what makes us think we shouldn't? Okay? <laughs> verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you're obeying him, you're obeying God. Okay? 
because his message came from God. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And why is it hard to explain? Because it's not a hard, difficult message to understand, but it was hard to explain it to his audience at that time in the first century because it says, since you have become dull of hearing. It was the people's fault. They didn't want to listen. Just like I quoted that scripture in Zechariah chapter 7. That common trait of Israelite, even modern Israelites today, is still prevalent in society today. We just have this attitude of not wanting to listen to the words of God. And then we persecute the prophets or those who support the prophet's message because of that evil and wicked sentiment or feeling. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this, now I want you to pay attention to this. For though by this you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teachers. We all should be teaching. The women should be teaching their daughters and their sons. Okay, other other women outside of their family. The laws of God. The men should be teaching everyone the laws of God. Uh, you men or young men who are growing up, you need to learn the word of God so you can do, let me uh, hold your place here and let's turn to Deuteronomy. This is a commandment to the men. I don't know if people realize this or not. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Commandment to both parents, but men are leaders of the family. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. This is the Shema in Judaism. With all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, that's what we as parents should be doing. And I'm going to prove to this Bible study, uh, and, and it's necessary next week too, that we as a society aren't doing this. We're not teaching our, our kids the laws of God. The, the Bible was taken out of the classroom in the later part of the 19th century in the, in the, in the school system. We can't even pray. You get persecuted today to pray in the public school system. That's how much we hate the words of God today. And people say, well, not everyone's like that. Well, that's not the point. The point is the majority is like that. And that's wrong. That's wrong. A few people in the world ain't going to save everybody. Everybody has to repent. So this is important that, that we teach our children the commandments of God. If we don't do that, the, these kids are going to grow up being maniacs and, 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 and monsters. And, and that's what is occurring. We lead the, all, the, the world in fatherless families, folks. This country. I was shocked to find that out. Google that on, on Google. Um, focus on the family. Uh, fatherless families. You, you should find that article. I'm going to try to read it today if I get around to it. But 
is 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 a is a sad case, folks. Sad case. Back to Hebrews chapter five, verse twelve. It says, "For for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, again." the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And he's making an analogy to being a baby. What is a baby? When a baby's born, what happens? They milk uh, their mother's breast and all that, right? You know, and then eventually they grow up and then, oh, mommy, I need food, you know? So the same analogy is this toward the Bible. The milk is what I'm about to tell you. And if you don't understand the milk, how are you going to understand the meat? Too many times I get people that want to understand the meat, and they don't even understand the milk. you got to go back to understand the milk first before I feed you the meat. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish what? Good from evil. Here we go again. It's about morality first, folks. It's about ethics. Understanding what is right and understanding what is wrong. Now, let's look at the milk. This is the milk. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, nor not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. So the first doctrine of God is repentance from dead works. I just read to you that the shed blood of Christ is a catalyst. And how is a catalyst? By by his sacrifice, the Holy Spirit is given to everyone that believes in him. The Holy Spirit is going to be what's going to help you obey God ultimately. The Israelites, as Stephen stated beautifully, resisted the Holy Spirit. That's why they had a problem obeying God. The prophets had the Holy Spirit of God. They had the Spirit of Christ, which is... You know, the Holy Spirit and Christ are linked together. Okay? So, right here. So the first doctrine of God is foundation of repentance from dead works. We we have to have alive works, not dead works. Okay? That's the first doctrine. That's the first doctrine. The very first sip of the milk from the bottle is that. Repentance from dead works. The second sip is having faith or trust toward God, believing his words. And those two folks, and I'm sad, sad to even think, because I know this is so true. On those two alone, the majority of churches or assemblies just don't get it. They don't serve like they should, and they don't believe all of God's words. Just on those two sips alone. They just don't understand it. Verse 3, the instruction about washings. What is that? Well, if you go to the Torah, it talks about how the priests washed themselves, how the people washed themselves, how the women even uh, washed themselves during their menstruation cycle. It's about being clean. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to clean your mind of dead works. But it also is symbolic of another washing, which is uh, a mikvah bath which Yochanan, the immerser, uh, continued on in his ministry, where people would uh, symbolically go underneath the water and then coming out of the water symbolic of a new, a new person. So that the washings involve all that, cleansing your mind 
and your body to serve the living God. That's what that doctrine is about. The fourth sip is the laying on of hands, and the laying on of hands uh, means a couple of things here. Number one, as far as the sacrifices were concerned, whenever people would sacrifice, they would take a lamb and then they would put their hands on the lamb and ask that their essence be put into the lamb. And so that lamb was in substitute for the human being, the sacrifice, instead of that human being sacrifice. So that's what that represents as far as the laying on of hands in, in, in the context of sacrifice. Now, in terms of other things like blessing, you know, um, in Genesis chapter 49, I think it's in, 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 in uh, 48 toward the end of it, it said that Jacob took his hands and he blessed uh, his children. Okay, I know uh, with Ephraim and um, Manasseh he did that. He put his hands over them and blessed them. So you can bless people when you lay your hands. Also, you can uh, you can, uh, ask God to heal somebody when you lay your hands on them. And also, laying on your hands could also be an ordination or asking God to uh, give an individual the strength and the character to do uh, duty in the church. So that's what the laying on of hands doctrine is all about as well. And it also involves teaching as well. All of those things. Um, the resurrection of the dead, that should be pretty obvious to you. Um, that's what the gospel is all about. If, if in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Shaul or Paul stated plainly that if Yeshua was not resurrected, what are we preaching for? We might as well go party and die. You know, so and then eternal judgment, which I don't think hardly anyone understands what this doctrine is about. It's about learning how to distinguish right from wrong. Okay? We're going to be king priests, that's what the Bible says. Kings and priests, particularly kings, okay, <laughs> have rules that needs to be followed. They're ruling, right? So a king, a righteous king, must know right from wrong. And that's what we're going to be for eternal. Uh, we're going to know right from wrong. And so we have to understand what's right from wrong. If we're going to be a king, and if we're in training to be a king, well, let's turn to the scriptures and what it says about that, for those who don't even think, think I don't know what crap I'm talking about. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 5, this is the ultimate destiny of those who, of the few, and it's going to be quite a few more coming out of the tribulation, but for right now it's the few that turn to God. Revelation 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from his sins. So, Trying to look for that scripture where it says, and has made us king priests. Thank you. All right. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So uh, that's our destiny, folks. We're, we're going to be kings and priests. And if you're a king, and then in Revelation 5, verse 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then in, in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death have no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. So not just priests of Christ, but also priests of God, which is interesting. And people always, you know, I get some people preaching false doctrines saying that 
um, well, heaven's going to be shut off. Well, <laughs> during the millennium, heaven's going to still be uh, not on earth. I mean, it's going to be in where it's at right now, in space somewhere, okay? And if we're going to serve God as priests, what the priests are linked with the temple worship. So we're going to be serving him in heaven, God, as well as Christ. So let's use a little common sense there. Is that making sense, Sherry? You know? And during the millennium, you know, sure, we're going to reign on the earth, but I don't see anywhere where it says we're going to live on the earth, you know? I don't see where that, that says that's our, our residence. I do see that uh, New Jerusalem is our residence. <laughs> I see that clearly. It takes really deep spiritual insight, folks, and, and the great love of God to understand what I'm talking about. And, and all you need is the desire. Just like in the message to the churches, as if you read it, each each time he ends, he says, um, he wishes that you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Because he knows that a lot of people, unfortunately, don't have that. <laughs> you know, it, it's just sad. But And then it says right here in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. This is in the King James Version. And I saw the souls of them, of the bodies of the lives of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, you know, this is the Bible, folks. You want to believe it, that's your business, you know, but... The Bible says that the believers in this age will be kings and priests of God and, and of Jesus Christ. All right, and if you're going to be a king, you need to train to be a king. Okay, and this reminds me of another scripture here about a king, too. If I can find it here. Let's see. Uh, the king and, and one of the characteristics of a king. And that's what you're training to be. And I think people miss that part about the gospel. And they have all these excuses of why they don't want to study. Here we go. Proverbs 25, verse 2. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible. Now, this is interesting. This is a very deep scripture, folks. It's going to take very great spiritual insight to understand this. And what I mean is that you need to, to have the willingness to want to really understand what I'm about to tell you here. Okay? Proverbs 25, verse 2 in the complete Jewish Bible version. God gets glory from concealing things. Kings get glory from investigating things. And on the King James Version says, search out things. Okay, so you're training to be a king, folks. If you want to believe in, in, in the true teachings of God, you're going to be you're training to be a king and a priest. You're going to be ruling and a priest. You're going to be serving. Helping with the sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. Teaching the people how to give and serve. That is going to be your responsibility. And one of the things that kings do, and they're going to get glory for this, is to investigate things, search out things. What does your version say, Sheree? Oh, it says it is the glory of God to have something and the glory of kings to discover something. There we go. That's even a better translation of that, to discover things. So how can you discover things 
if you don't study. You get that, son? Gennar? Gennar, my son's going to sleep. Well, I tell you. But anyway, I know why he's going to sleep. You know, uh, there was some disturbances last night, but uh, I understand that. He's going to have to listen to this message again if he's falling asleep on it. But anyway, the point of the matter is that's being a king. Uh, is he woke up now? Yeah. I want you to read this. Kennard, I want you to. This is very important here. Proverbs 25, verse 2. Yeah, I want him to, you know, I want to read it again to him. Don't worry, Kennard. I'm sure other people have fallen asleep on my message, too, so don't worry about it. Proverbs 25, verse 2. It's not really my message. It's God's message. I'm just quoting the scriptures. Well, I'm not asleep. Well, no. Amazingly, my wife is not asleep. I'm going to have to give her a big reward for that. Anyway, Proverbs 25, verse 2. says, God gets glory from concealing things. Kings get glory from investigating things. And, and your version, Kennard, says discover. And that's, that's the, really the the, the uh, good. Yeah, that, that word means car-car. Uh, and it means to penetrate, to examine intimately, to find out, to search, to seek, sound, try, in the original Hebrew. And so, Kennard, I was trying to explain, as you were dozing off there, that you know, we should be a king and a priest. God is training us to be a king and a priest. And a king has rules that he wants his subjects to follow. Am I correct? And this scripture tells you that one of the things that a king does is discover things, searches out things. And how can you discover things if you don't study things? So you're training to be a king, Kanar. I know sometimes it just... Let me read to you again, because you, you know, let me read this to you, because this is important. This is what you're training, and all of us are training to be. Uh, in Revelation 20, verse 4, then I saw thrones. Picture yourself on a throne, son. Picture yourself on a glorified throne, and people sitting on them, and you're going to be one of them. These were the ones who have been given the power to judge. We're going to be given power to judge. Eternal judgment. Okay? I'm not, you know, raising my voice because I'm mad. I just want you to understand the significance of that. We're going to be given power to judge. Okay? To make rulings as kings. And I saw the souls of those who have been killed because they were faithful to the truth of Jesus and the message from God. They did not worship the beast or his idol. They did not receive the mark of the beast in their foreheads or their hands. They came back to life and ruled with Christ. Here we go again. Rulership with Christ for 1,000 years. Verse 5. To me, this message is much more important than in cartoons, whatever. Okay? They don't compare. It doesn't. Okay? It says, the rest of the dead did not live again until the 1,000 years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, I want you to pay attention to this one. Verse 6. Great, bless belong, great blessings belong to those who share in the first resurrection. They are God's holy people. The second death have no power over them. In other words, they're, they're immortal. They cannot die. They will be priests for God and for Christ. 
and they will rule with him for a thousand years. Okay? So that's what we're doing here. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, you are training to be a king priest, like Yeshua. And I tell you right now that for those who aren't studying the Bible, it's about time you start doing it. I studied the Bible extensively and intensely on a daily basis. That's how I'm able to teach. And for those who want to teach, if you truly want to teach, you need to search out a matter and discover things out of the Bible. Because Paul said you should be teachers. Why did he say that? Because we're going to be teachers. A king teaches people. Okay? That's what a king does. He teaches people. So you're going to have to change your perspective on the Bible. You just can't listen to me preach and say, okay, that's what I got. From, I got my nourishment for the week. You know, I mean, me and my wife went to a church that taught that basically, that we only can get nourishment from the ministers. The minister's responsibility is to give you the milk so you can eat the meat. That's our responsibility to give you the foundation. But once you get the, you get the foundation, you should be able to take that Bible, study it, and, and start to, to discover things on your own. Just like a child. When you... <laughs> Kennard, do I, do, I, do I feed you anymore? Huh? You feed yourself, right? Same thing with the Bible. Eventually, you're going to have to learn how to study on your own. I'm trying to make it as plain and clear as I can. Not just for you. It's a whole lot of people far worse than what I'm describing about you, Kennard. I mean, they, they don't even read the Bible. They don't want to listen to it. But this is a part of growing up spiritually. You have to not depend on all these messianic preachers preaching to you every week, including myself. My job is is to teach the foundation, and perhaps some meat too. But just don't listen to me. Do your own independent Bible study. If you don't do those things, you're not really a king. You're not training to be a king, a king priest. Now you know, yeah, I'm talking about king, but the priestly function too, which I'm gonna get in a little bit today, is about serving people. The king, you rule over people and serve, but the priestly function really is 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 a component of serving. When you really understand it. Now, I don't know if this has been ever preached like this before. But the reason why I'm able to do it is because I do search out the Bible. I've been doing it for years. I just realized that. I've been doing it for 27 years, trying to discover things out of the Bible. I made the mistake during that discovery period of depending too much on men, trusting them, and what they preach without doing a proper investigation. But thank God he's taught me how to do that now, and if you're willing, I can teach you as well, so that you will not be deceived by people that... Uh, and this, let me quote this scripture, too, because many people don't understand this one, okay? Uh, but first, let me let me quote Matthew chapter 25. And I'm going to take my time with this Elijah message thing here, because this is very important, and and it has to be talked about. Now... Christ said here, and read this in complete Jewish Bible version. In verse 19. Oh, actually in verse 18. Now this is significant what he said, folks. I want you to pay attention to this, please. All right? 
Yeshua came and talked with them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I want you to hold your place there and go to the book of Revelation. I'm trying to inspire you folks to, to look at the Bible like it's Star Wars, folks, okay? Because this is more exciting to me than Star Wars or anything. Now, I just read you that he has all power in heaven and earth, right? Okay. Let me show you something here. Revelation 3, verse 21. And you know this being that has all power in heaven and earth sits on the throne, right? Well, this is what he says to those people who obey him, obeys the laws of God. Look what you're going to get here. Revelation 3, verse 21. I will let him who wins. Okay, wait a minute. In verse 20. Here I'm standing at the door knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he will eat with me. And I'm going to prove to you that he's talking about these times we're living in today, in James chapter 5. But anyway, in verse 21, I will let him who wins the victory sit with me on my throne, just as I myself also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. So, so you understand what I just told you here. He has all power in heaven and earth, and he sits on the throne, and he's going to allow us to sit with him. We're going to share in that power. We're going to have all that power in heaven and earth as well. Remember, the assembly of God is going to marry Yeshua. And remember, in a marriage, you become one flesh. Where we're going to be coming one with him it means that whatever he has, we're going to have. So I know it's incredible, folks, but this is God's words here, okay? And back to the fact that he's standing at the door. Let's turn. What, what does he mean, James, in, in terms of prophecy? James chapter 5, starting at verse 1. This is the reason why I know the Messiah is coming here soon, folks. It has something to do with depression. It has something to do with the destruction of society. It has something to do with the destruction of the family, which fathers and sons are leaders of. And to a certain extent, daughters. Can't leave the daughters out, okay? Uh, but that's the order, fathers, sons, daughters. Uh, James, and then wait a minute, fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters. That's the order. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 1. Next, a word for the rich. Now, let's use a little common sense. And this book, let me prove to you, let's turn to James chapter 1. This, The book of James, folks, is a prophetic book. It doesn't surprise me because James is the brother of Jesus. And Jude was the brother of Jesus, so they're the brother of a prophet. So what makes you think they're not prophets? Okay, so uh, James chapter 1, verse 1. From Yaakov, or uh, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, to the twelve tribes in the diaspora, Shalom. The twelve tribes of Israel, if you go to Yara Davidi's website, who I know God is using to preach this truth, this great truth that hardly anyone knows about, that the 12 tribes today consist of Canada, the United States, the countries in Northwestern Europe, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and also the little nation of Israel in the Middle East. That is Israel, folks. And you can be grafted, if you're not in those areas, you can be grafted into Israel by just believing that Yeshua, Yeshua, is King Messiah. He's the, the, the King of Israel. So that's Israel, folks. 
And this is a prophecy because Israel is scattered. They're not all in the Middle East, are they? Like they're supposed to be. So this book is addressed specifically to the 12 tribes. Now, to really prove this, once and for all, if you turn to James 5, verse 1, which is a prophecy that is linked to what the book of Revelation said about him standing at the door, as you're going to see in a minute. James 5, verse 1. Next, a word for the rich. Now, what's the richest country in the world, folks? The United States, right? We're the richest country in the world. We have a net worth or a gross domestic product, which is the the, uh, the, the sum total of all goods and services produced. Over $14 trillion. That's a lot of money. $14 trillion. And I think our debt is more... Yeah, it is. Our debt is way more than that. It's $200 trillion. So that, that's the hole that we're in right now. But anyway, James 5, verse 1. Next, a word for the rich. Weeping well over the hardships coming upon you. So the rich is going to get theirs, folks. That's what God is saying. He's not going to allow the wicked rich. And that's what he's talking about, the wicked rich here. And as many of them to get away with what they're doing, with the oppression that they're doing right now. Verse 2, your riches have rotted, and your clothes have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. This is the uh, the last days. That's what that, I'm not going to read this word here because you guys won't even understand it, but let me go, go to, it says, that, I'm going to read another version, English Standard Version about that rust will eat your bodies like fire. You saved your treasure in the last days. Okay? So this is a prophecy to say that there's going to be some area in the world or areas of the world where they're going to have great treasure in the last days. Now, what areas in the world has great treasure in the last days, folks? Canada, the United States, South Africa, New Zealand, the countries of Northwestern Europe. Now, come on. Now, you know I'm making sense, right? What does the Lord's brother say here, who has a prophetic spirit? He states, you saved your treasure in the last days. Okay? That tells you the timing of what he's saying here. It's the days we're living in today. And that scripture says that there's going to be a lot of treasure in the end times, and it is. $14 trillion, that's a lot of money. Verse 4, people worked in your fields, but you did not pay them. What is What are people doing around the world as I'm speaking right now? Occupy, right? Occupy Wall Street. It's happening around the world. People are protesting because of the oppression of the rich. That's what he's talking about here. Now, it happened a little bit back then, but this is prophetic. Again, I read to you that it said the last days. It's talking about today, too. Prophecy, in a lot of cases, is dual. Sometimes it's triple. Like the tribulation, for instance. That's another Bible study. But anyway, people worked in your fields, but you did not pay them. Now, today is not the field. Well, sometimes, yeah, I guess it is fields, you know, in, in some cases. But uh, in the factory fields today, uh, in the, the business corporate suites today, people are not getting paid like they should. That's oppression. They are crying out against you. God doesn't like that. He doesn't like oppression. He hates it. They harvested your crops. Now the Lord All-Powerful has heard their cries. Okay? And, and, and you, you, those who are, are listening to me that are poor, 
I'm telling you, he, he hears your cries. And he's going to avenge on your behalf. Trust me on that. Verse 5, your life on earth was full of rich living. He's talking about the wicked rich again. You pleased yourselves with everything you wanted. You made yourselves fat. Here we go again, a characteristic of Israel. Fat. Like in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Jazrun wax fat. That's us. If there's a, They ought to change the symbol of Uncle Sam to be a fat man. That's us today. That's the symbol of America today, unfortunately, according to God. Verse 5, your life was on earth was full of rich living. You pleased yourself with everything you wanted. You made yourself fat, as obviously many people that are rich do. They make themselves fat, like an animal ready for the day of slaughter. So he's saying they're only making themselves ready <laughs> for slaughter, you know, as far as getting fat. You show no mercy to good people. You're not going to be in God's kingdom not showing mercy to people, folks. They were not against you, but you killed them. And that's how you kill folks, by you, you contribute to killing them by not having mercy. And then, yeah, we want mercy. We want God to have mercy for us, right? Verse 7, brothers and sisters, be patient. The Lord will come. Now, he's talking about this is linked, this oppression, this... People crying out like people around the world are doing right now. They're crying out all over the world in 1,700 cities worldwide. They're sick and tired of, of the rich destroying the poor. I'm going to read you Proverbs 30. Remind me to do that. Verse 14. That tells you that this is the generation where the, the poor are devoured off the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, be patient. The Lord will come. So be patient until that time. Look at the farmers. They have to be patient. They have to wait for the valuable crop to grow and produce a harvest. They wait patiently for the first rain and the last rain. You must be patient too. Never stop hoping. The Lord is coming soon. This is, again, in the context of the rich oppressing the poor. Am I making sense? And it's in the context of the last days, the days we're living in today. And how do I know it's the last days? Well, what's going on in the world right now? Economic, worldwide chaos. And it's not going to get any better, folks. Wake up. This is the end times. It truly is. I know many people were wrong. But now we have finally reached that point in history. Well, the Messiah will come back in this 21st century. I can't see how he's not going to come back in the 21st century. We're not going to last this century if he doesn't come back. And then he states because he's coming soon. Brothers and sisters, don't complain against each other. If you don't stop complaining, you will be judged guilty. And the judge is ready to come. Now he's ready to come now. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, follow the example of the prophets who spoke for the Lord. They suffered many bad things, uh, but they were patient. And he talks about the patience of Job. And when we say that those who accepted their troubles with patience now have God's blessing. You have heard about Job's patience. I told you how Job cared about people. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. You imagine, we talk about it now. Let me see. Let me see if I can find that scripture here. Yeah, we need to talk about it now. Wait for next week for this one. All right, let's see. Trying to find out where that scripture's at in Job. Just type in poor and I'll find it. 
Oh yeah, well that's because it's in a different version. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll make the connection here in a minute. Let's see. All right, Job chapter 29, verse 12. Because I helped the poor when they cried out. I helped the orphans who had no one to care for them. Okay, so, you know, Job did a good job of that. He didn't, he cared about the poor. I'm trying to find some other scriptures here that prove this to you here. Job. Here we go. Job 29, verse 16. I was like a father to the poor. I helped people I didn't even know win their case in court. I stopped evil people from abusing their power and saved innocent people from them. Okay, so again, that that was his attitude. And then in, in Job 31, verse 18. All my life I've been like a father to orphans and have taken care of widows. That's Job. That's why God considered him so, so righteous, you know, because he truly cared about people. He truly cared about people. And then in the context of this oppression, it doesn't surprise me that he's talking about Job here, his brother James, uh, Christ's brother, James. So, you know, you got to, this is, you know, this is an example of discovering things. When you, you study the Bible and you realize why certain patriarchs are mentioned in the Bible, you know, and it figures that he, you know he's he's mentioned in the Bible that way because he was a very very caring man, and he he just cared about people. I'm trying to find another scripture here. I don't know if I'll be able to find it here. Let's see, there we go. Okay, well, that's enough about Joe. I think I'll be able to find another scripture which say he searched out for the poor. But um, let me go back to, where was that? Oh, James again. How much time I have left here? Uh, 21 minutes. James, chapter 5. In James chapter 5 in the King James Version, it says, Grudge not one against another, brethren, that not you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. In James 5 verse 9. What does yours say there? It says, uh, Don't complain about each other, brothers and sisters, so that you won't be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the door. There we go. Okay, so that's linked with that scripture. Let's go back to Revelation again. And see, when we go to Revelation chapter 3, uh, when it talks about the, the, the lay of the sin era that we're living in today, uh, Laodicea wasn't really a great assembly back in the first century, and it certainly isn't today either. Um, this is what he says about the Laodicean era of today. Uh, in verse 14, 
Revelation 3, verse 14. I'll read this in the complete Jewish Bible. Let me see. Okay. It says, To the angel of the Messianic community of Sardis. Not Sardis. Let me go down to verse 14. To the angel of the Messianic community in Laodicea, right? Here, here's a message from the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of the God's creation. And the other version says the, the beginning of God's creation. Anyway, I know what you are doing. You are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, for you keep saying I am rich. I have gotten rich. I don't need a thing. You don't know that you are the one who was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's prophesying of the richness of the churches in America. Okay, uh, I don't know a minister today that ain't making a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, there's a few, like myself, who's what a minister should be, not making money off the people and being rich and all that, and, and having lots of things, you know. But but uh, the majority of assemblies, even the messianic assemblies, a lot of them don't work. They got fat bellies and stuff, and and they they depend on the people to support them. And that's nowhere in the scriptures, folks. You know, Paul worked, Yeshua worked, the apostles worked. You don't believe me? Read uh, my article on tithes and offerings. Go to my website, mercifulservantsofgod.com, and read that article. Okay. Verse 18, my advice to you is to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He's not talking about richness uh, on the earth. He's talking about having riches in heaven. And white clothing so that you may be dressed and not have to be ashamed of your nakedness. And I solve to rub in your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, as for me, I rebuke and discipline everyone I love. And this is a message that people don't understand as a part of eternal judgment. Uh, you have to be corrected to be king priest. And a lot of us don't want to be corrected. Verse 20, here, I'm standing at the door knocking. If someone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, in to him and eat with him and he will eat with me. Okay? So you can see that, again, his coming is linked with socioeconomics. The gospel is, is really about that. Socioeconomics and the fact that God wants to save you from eternal death. That's what the good news of the gospel is. Freedom from oppression, freedom from eternal death. So that's the beautiful message of the gospel, folks. That's what it's all about. And it's all outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But let's go over here, because I'm not going to have too much time. Let's go over what the Elijah message is, and we're going to pick back up on this, the importance of, of uh, the Elijah message I'm going to title it. And, and uh, we need to understand the significance of this. The Elijah message is revealed in Malachi. Let's turn to Malachi. Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1. 
So I'm going to read this whole chapter here because it's, it's really actually chapter 3 I should read, but I don't have enough time, so I'm going to go into that fully next week. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. It's talking about the day of the Lord. That's the context here. The day when the Messiah will land his feet on the Mount of Olives and judge the world. That the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. And you're going to understand fully next week what the baptism of fire is all about. This is the immersing of fire that was talked about by Yeshua himself. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, it will be nothing left of them. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves in the stall, and you shall thread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, verse 4, for people that say that the law of Moses doesn't make a difference, well, in the context of the day of the Lord, of destruction of the wicked, it's telling you to remember, context means the surroundings, the background. It's telling you to remember the Torah of my servant Moshe or Moses. The statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Hor for all of Israel. So I want you to understand something. In the context, in the context of the day of the Lord, the terrible, the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a terrible day because God doesn't want to kill people, but unfortunately they don't want to obey, so he's going to have to get rid of them. All right, uh, remember the, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Hor for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The Messiah lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. So if you want a description of that day, uh, study Zechariah chapter 14. It describes you exactly what's going to happen when he comes, the mountain of Cleveland to the Mount of Olives. He's going to go toward the Temple Mount. The temple at that time will be built despite what people think. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, that night I come and strike the land, or it should, mean, it should in that context be world, with a degree of utter destruction. And this is a worldwide message. The gospel is a worldwide message. And this is the message of the Elijah. There were two Elijahs so far. You had the original Elijah, and you had John the Baptist that came in the power and spirit of Elijah, but Christ stated that there would be a third Elijah coming. Let's turn there here real quick, and then we're going to pick back up on this. We have 13 minutes left, but uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I'm reading this in the English Standard Version. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 10. Many people don't really get this, but I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying here. Just listen to the words of God and, and believe the words of God. Don't act like the ancient Israels of the past, Israelites of the past. Matthew 17, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes, the scribes were back then and still are today, are teachers of the law, those who have great writing ability. 
Why did the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? That first Elijah must come. And even today, folks, uh, the Jews, during their Passover Seder, they leave a cup for Elijah. So they know that Elijah is going to come. They know that he must come again. He must come again to restore all things. So um, Matthew 17, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, says, then why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? Then why do the, uh, it didn't say first Elijah, it says, then why do the scribes say that the first, say that first Elijah must come? Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And then verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Now notice that. I'm going to repeat this again because people just don't get this, okay? In verse 11, he says, he answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. In verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And this is probably going to be the case with the third Elijah. They're not going to recognize him either. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. In verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now. When you go back to the prophecy in Malachi, it's in the context of the day of the Lord, of his coming, his second coming, okay? Him landing his feet on the Mount of Olives. True, John the Baptist fulfilled part of that prophecy in Malachi. But what many people don't understand is that prophecy has yet to be totally fulfilled. If you turn to Malachi again, chapter 4, Now, after he quotes that you better in the context of the day of the Lord, now he talks about this day. What is the characteristics of this day? Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day, the actual day that Christ lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. Burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Will be stubble. Let me see if I can read this. I still have some minutes left here. Ten minutes. Let me see. Um... I want you to understand what this immersion is that he's talking about. This burning up. It's very important for you to understand this. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Now remember that John the Baptist is a type of Elijah, so let's pay attention to what he has to say here as a part of the Elijah message. Malachi chapter 3. Oh, Matthew chapter 3, I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 3. I have my wife straight me out here. Now, in Malachi chapter, oh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, which is the West Bank today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We got to all change, because we we don't change. The kingdom of heaven ain't going to be at hand for us, that's for sure. For th For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, in the literal wilderness in this case, because that's what he did. He preached in the wilderness, in the wilderness of Judea. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, symbolic of his poverty. He didn't have a lot of things. And his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him or immersed by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his immersion or baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Okay, I want you to, this is the Elijah message, folks. It's not a pretty message. It's the message to inspire you to repent, to motivate you to repent, to change, because the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the Elijah message. Okay? It's all about repentance. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, do something. Repent from dead works. Verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Verse 10, he says, even now, which means that what he's talking about is prophetic. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And the trees are us, as you can see here. Every tree or human being, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The immersion that you guys want, that I want, is the Holy Spirit. You don't want to be immersed with fire, folks. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the baptism of fire, folks. You don't want to be baptized with fire. And that's the description of what's occurring here in Malachi. When it talks about, let's go back there again. See, people don't really understand this. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. It should be perfectly clear to you what this baptism of fire is all about, folks. And it's not talking about the little tongues of fire when the apostles were received the Holy Spirit. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about this event. Okay? The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will lead them neither root nor branch. So you want to avoid that day. You want to avoid the baptism of fire in this context. That's what the Elijah message is all about, folks. Avoiding that baptism of fire. You don't want to be burnt to a crisp. And it says that these folks uh, will be ashes under the soles of the righteous feet. Okay? Verse 3, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. That's what the immersion of fire will to anyone that does not want to obey our Lord and Savior. It's a very serious message. I don't see I don't hear this message being preached in the correct way. Because in the context of it is help people, share your possessions, care about people, love the poor, stop oppressing. That's the true Elijah message. You got people going around making money saying that Elijah message is something else. No. This is the true Elijah message. This is what it's all about. It's the message of repentance, of changing from doing dead works to doing good works or alive works. It's all about deeds, folks. It's not about mouth. 
and saying what you're going to do and not doing it. That's what it's about. So, how much time do I have left here? The Elijah message really is a message of reconciliation between father and son. Some people have misinterpreted to say it was talking about the fathers. Uh, you know, no, it's, it's in a sense it is talking about our, our patriarchs. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But more is talking about the fabric of society, how it's been destroyed basically because the fathers don't honor their sons and the sons don't honor their fathers like they should. There's two different ways of honor. Um, a father honors their son by respecting them and treating them like human beings and encouraging them. A son, of course, honors his father by, first of all, obeying him in the Lord if what the father tells the son is has nothing to do with disobeying the law of God, then they're commanded to obey. And then they should take seriously what their father is telling them. Don't think your father's a joke. Don't make fun of him. Fathers and sons today need to be reconciled. They are the leaders of society. And because of this failure to to, to reconcile, most of the world is in a destructive uh, type of environment right now. As I stated before, and I'll, I'll read this article to you next week because I don't have the time to do it now. We lead the world in, in fatherless families. One out of four, one out of four families don't have fathers. So every four family you go to, there's not a father there. And there's a scripture uh, in Jeremiah 16, verse 19 to 21. It says that we have all inherited lies from our fathers. The fathers is the leadership of, is the leader of society. Fathers and, of course, sons, because every father has been a son of a father, right? So they are the leaders of society. And when the fathers don't teach their children the law of God, what happens? So let's look at another scripture that defines what the Elijah role is a little more clearer here in Luke chapter 1. And then we're going to close and we're going to pick up on this next week. Luke chapter 1 verse 17. And it's talking about the Elijah message again, and of course John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, but he had Elijah's mannerism, and he had his power. Just like Elijah had um, Elijah's power. And he did miracles like, like Elijah, but it doesn't appear that John the Baptist did miracles, but he had the miracle of preaching Elijah's message. Okay, and Luke chapter 1 verse 17 and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children here we go again it's, it's, it's the fathers first as their leadership position they have to turn their hearts to their children and then the sons turn their heart to their father so the fathers have to lead in this that's what God's desire is is for the fathers to lead in reconciliation 
because they are the leaders. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So this message is about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. And it's about the disobedient, turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, which tells you that in this end time there's a lot of people that are disobedient because they don't want to to get the wisdom. Of, where do you get the wisdom of the just from? From the Bible. They don't want to read the Bible. So that's why they're disobedient. And to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So that's another function of the Elijah message. I support that message. Yeah, I know, and my wife is telling me it's about to cut off. All right, well, let's end there, and I'm going to pick up next week. I'm going to change the title a little bit. It'll be the importance of Elijah's message. I'm going to get into the importance of it. May God bless and keep you, and God willing, I'll be available to you next week and for you next week. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.